This is Around the Rim with LaChina Robinson. Hello, basketball fans. You are in for a treat as Tariq and I have a very special episode of our ESPNW Around the Rim podcast. Today, we are celebrating National Girls and Women in Sport Day, and we hope you know that it is extremely important to Tarika and I that we give women and girls a platform to not only be visible in sport, but to hear their voices and be inspired by their stories. We truly believe that if you can see her, you can be her. And all the young girls across the country should have the opportunity to see women working both in sport, on the court and on the field, but also as broadcasters and all the different positions, coaches that there are for them to be involved and get in the game. So today we are actually republishing a podcast that we did last summer um, in honor of Title IX's anniversary. It's a panel discussion you won't want to miss around girls of color in Title IX. So many amazing voices in this conversation, including Candace Parker, Dawn Staley, and keeping in mind this is also Black History Month, so a very timely and important conversation as we celebrate sport and also in recognition how we can have better opportunities for girls moving forward. We hope you enjoy. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome. I am LaChina Robinson, and I'll be your host and moderator for today's conversation. Today marks the 48th anniversary of the passage of Title IX, a landmark law in the U.S., that is widely known for helping to open doors for women and girls to participate in sports. But what has this landmark law done for girls of color? Today, we'll explore just that. Between Title IX's anniversary, Pride Month, and WNBA season, yes, I'm biased, the world of women's sports would usually have a lot to celebrate in June. This June, however, is not full of our usual celebrations as we find ourselves in unprecedented times. We've seen the COVID-19 pandemic bring our world to a screeching halt. And with a surge in protest against systemic racism happening across the country, we are witnessing a groundswell of support in the fight for racial justice and equality in our nation. With all that is happening in our world disproportionately impacting people of color, it is important to take this time to look through the lens of sport to figure out how we can lift up women of color who are the double minority. Girls of color will have to deal with sexism and racism, a burden that is often too much to bear. This conversation is brought to you by the Women's Sports Foundation, an organization which I care deeply about. When my colleagues at the Women's Sports Foundation approached me about having a conversation on Title IX's anniversary centered on girls of color, I jumped at the opportunity to have such a critical discussion at this time. I know we have a lot to talk about today, so let's get started by introducing our panelists. They bring a wide range of experiences and expertise, which will make for a great dialogue. Up first, Nina Chaudhry, General Counsel and Senior Advisor for Education at the National Women's Law Center. Welcome, Nina. Sarah Ackleson, Senior Director of Advocacy at the Women's Sports Foundation. Sarah. Candace Parker, WNBA champion, two-time WNBA MVP. The LA Sparks, of course, we don't know that. 
And then last but not least, Dawn Staley, current head coach of Team USA and the University of South Carolina women's basketball. Dawn made history this year, becoming the first ever head coach in either men's or women's college basketball to win the Naismith Coach of the Year Award after previously winning the Naismith Player of the Year Award twice, not just once, making sure you get that credit on. Before we get started with such an important conversation, I want to turn the mic over to a very special guest for some opening remarks. She is one of the 20th century's most influential people, a longtime champion for social change and equality, founder of the Women's Sports Foundation, and if I had to choose just one word, I might call her legend. Folks, put your hands together and welcome the one and only Billie Jean King. Thank you, LaChina. It's great to see you. Great to see you, too. And hello, everyone. I'm so glad to join all of you, and I want to thank Candace and Don and Nina and Sarah, as you said, LaChina, on this 48th anniversary of Title IX. I cannot believe most of you weren't alive. I was. <laughs> anyway, as you said, Title IX is one of the most important pieces of legislation of the 20th century and is a landmark ruling that champions equality. I'm now going to read the words of Title IX, just so you know what it is exactly, if everyone out there has not heard it yet. No person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. Those are the most important 37 words in the history of women's sports. Without Title IX, there would be no college athletic scholarships for women in this country. It certainly opened a whole new world for many girls, but not all, not yet. As you said, the Women's Sports Foundation has research that has shown that girls of color continue to be underserved and overlooked. Title IX is built on inclusion. No person shall be excluded. That's the promise. Progress has been made, but we still have a long way to go, especially for girls of color. To be truly inclusive, we need everyone. That means everyone all in. At 13, I had an epiphany. I had just been in tennis for two years. Basketball, by the way, was my favorite sport growing up. Um, this is before they had the WNBA, way before. And uh, I started playing tennis because of a friend. And at 13, I've been playing for two years. And I was daydreaming at the Los Angeles Tennis Club about uh, my sport. And I realized at that time, um, everybody wore white shoes and white clothes, played with white balls, and everybody who played was white. And I asked myself at 13, where is everybody else? Where is everybody else? So that is the moment that I promised myself I would fight for equality the rest of my life. And that's why here we are. And that's why I founded the Women's Sports Foundation in 1974, to be an ally, to advocate and be a catalyst for tomorrow's leaders, to be a guardian of Title IX for women's sports, and also to have money for local programs. But we want to enable girls and women to reach their potential in sport and in life. All girls, all women, all sports. How can girls and women reach that potential if they don't have the means, the access, or opportunity? Our society wins when 
everyone is equally heard, valued, and given the access and the opportunity to realize their full potential. Girls of color deserve every opportunity as any other girl in our society. Color, race, gender, sexual orientation, disabled, it doesn't matter. It starts with listening, learning, and leading. Listen, learn, lead. That's why we are here today with this incredible panel to listen to their perspectives and learn from their experiences. This new generation is coming of age, and I am hopeful we will continue to commit to the global groundswell raising their voices, raising their voices to fulfill the promise for all. Well, China, it's back to you. <laughs> Thank you so much, Billie Jean. And on such an important day, I just want to thank you for all that you have done in the fight for Title IX. I personally am one of 15 children, and only two of us have graduated from college. I know personally that my access to a college education came about only through involvement with sport and Title IX. So thank you for your hard work and your leadership. Thank you. All right. For those of you watching... Uh, through Zoom. Please feel free to submit your questions in the Q&A feature. We will try to get to them at some point in this discussion. Also, if you are posting or tweeting about this, use the hashtag equity project when sharing your thoughts um, or our panelists' thoughts, because I think we're going to have some good ones coming from this group today. And for our panelists, we want this to be an open conversation, so feel free to jump in where appropriate. All right, so let's go ahead and get started. Sarah, you are one of our Title IX experts on the panel. So just refresh everyone's memory by giving us a crash course on what the law is. Sure. And, and first and foremost, LaChina, I just want to say, you know, from everyone at WSF, thank you to everyone who has tuned in today. And to you, LaChina, and my fellow panelists, we're just so excited to have this conversation. And I'm sure it's going to be uh, truly engaging. Um, and thank you, Billy, for joining us. It's always such a privilege to work every day to help realize your vision for WSF and for equality in sports. So Billy just read the law to us. It's 37 simple words. It was passed in 1972, and it very succinctly prohibits sex discrimination in educational institutions which receive federal funds. And that includes sports, because in the U.S., our sports experiences are tied to our schools. So when we look at Title IX and athletics, it really covers three main areas. It covers participation, and there are three ways that a school can comply with that portion of the law. And I won't get into the weeds too much on that, but there are three different ways that a school can comply with equitable participation opportunity for boys and girls. Um, The second area is treatment and benefits that schools have to provide equitable benefits and treatment to their male and female athletes. Um, And I should mention that Title IX is a total program law, which means that we're not comparing sport by sport. So we're not comparing what boys basketball has to what girl girls basketball has but we're comparing what do all of the boys have at that school and how does that compare to what all of the girls have at that school? So looking at that treatment and benefits, that's what we call the laundry list that covers things like facilities, uniforms, transportation, all of the other things that tend to go into a sports experience, that's included there. So you expect schools to treat all of their student athletes equitably. And the third area is around college scholarships. And so this is about athletic-related financial aid. So college athletic scholarships that you, schools need to provide athletic scholarships equitably. And what that means is it needs to be 
um, very similar in breakdown to what the athlete population is. So if you have a 55% female athletes, you would expect scholarships to be very close to that 55% in terms of the dollar amount when it's broken down. And so we've seen pretty much an exponential increase in opportunity for girls in, in sports since the passage of Title IX. But it's important to note that girls across the board still don't have equitable opportunities in sports compared to boys. But on top of that, when we look at the primary beneficiaries of Title IX, as Billy alluded to, it's largely been suburban white girls who have benefited from that experience. And I'm excited to really dig into more of the details as to why as we continue this conversation. Yeah, and with that, thank you, Sarah. Nina, I'm going to shift to you because that's the reason why we're here. I mean, we want to dig a little deeper into the impact of Title IX specifically on girls of color. What does the research tell us? Yeah, thank you, LaChina. And I just want to start by thanking the Women's Sports Foundation for inviting me to be on this panel. Not going to lie, I'm having a bit of a fangirl moment here since I've been a huge WNBA fan since the beginning of the league. And I just have to take a moment to say, go Mystics! <laughs> but, okay, but back Keep to the question. But she'll get over it. <laughs> back to your question. Um, so first, I just want to start out with a little bit of good news, which is that over the past 48 years, Title IX has opened up the doors for girls and women to play sports. And they have come barreling through. Uh, just a quick example, before Title IX, about 30,000 girls played high school sports. Now it's almost three and a half million. So that is huge. We have lots of people to thank, including Billie Jean King, for her leadership. Um, the bad news is that despite the law, the playing field is not level. Um, over the 20-plus years I've been doing Title IX work at the National Women's Law Center, I've worked with many parents and students who have come to us because their daughters are not being treated fairly. For example, I've helped several coaches and parents who wanted to make improvements to girls' fields, which were run down with holes and debris had no bleachers, no fences, while the boys' teams were playing on fields that looked like minor league stadiums. And when it comes to girls of color, there's really not a lot of research out there on how Title IX has benefited them, mainly because the available data only shows how many girls are playing sports at each school, and it doesn't break it down by race and ethnicity. So a few years ago, we co-wrote a report where we used a new research strategy and looked at schools where the student body was either 90% or more white or uh, 90% or more students of color. And then we compared the opportunities provided to girls at those schools. And unfortunately, what we found was that girls of color received far fewer opportunities to play school sports than white girls, than white boys, and boys of color. And this inequality deprives girls of a multitude of positive benefits, uh, health, academic, employment, and leadership that come from playing sports. Yeah, Nina, you bring up a stat that really stood out to me in preparing for this conversation. And I'll just say it again for the audience, um, that 42% of our schools total are either 90% white students or 90% black students. So in essence, it's almost like modern day segregation in a sense, um, the way it's divided. I mean, it makes me think a lot about the discussions we're having right now in our country about racism. Like how can we expose our children to people who are different if they are in schools where they don't see people that don't look like them? Um, and we know that in these schools where races are divided, that means resources are not even distribu evenly distributed either. 
Um, I want to get to to Dawn and Candace, but really quickly, Nina, if you can tell me whose responsibility is it to regulate Title IX and what steps can be taken to rectify this gap for girls of color? Yeah, and I, I just want to echo what you said, Lashana, which is it is modern day segregation, which is a whole nother problem and legacy of racism in our country that we need to address. Um, but, you know, the U.S. Department of Education is supposed to enforce the law as our states, uh, but that often doesn't happen, which means that in reality, parents and students and coaches and advocates have stepped up and had to ask their schools to do better. Um, and our report has a bunch of recommendations. I just want to highlight like one or two that I think, you know, could be really helpful. One is that states really do need to make sure that when they're distributing educational resources and funding, that they do it equally to all school districts in their state. So they're not discriminating based on race. Um, because we continue to see districts with more students of color getting less. And that's just wrong. Um, and then, you know, states and schools also need to look at the barriers to girls' sports participation that might exist and figure out ways to add opportunities for girls, including by asking them what they want to play that their school's not offering. Uh, and then finally, parents can and students can also, you know, ask their schools to address any problems that they see. And I just want to say we have a checklist on our website called Check It Out that many people have used over the years to evaluate whether their schools are providing equal athletic opportunities. Thank you, Nina. To that point, we are on this panel today going to talk about some of those barriers. We know that Title IX regulation has to be better, but also today we want to bring awareness to some of those barriers and equities that girls of color face, reasons as to why they aren't reaping the same benefits of sport participation as white girls. One thing we have heard often, I've lived it, and we'll talk to Dawn and Candace now about this, but you hear it even more frequently in low-income neighborhoods is that there's no team for the girls. Reasons, lack of interest from the girls, not enough money uh, for the girls after you start the boys' team. Dawn, when you were young, were there always teams for the girls um, And when you were coming up? And how did that either encourage you or discourage you from participating in sport? Well, well, well coming up um... – no, there weren't any girls' teams. Um, I, you know, I just picked up all sports playing in my neighborhood in the projects in North Philly, Raymond Rosen. And I, I think as a as a people, we are resourceful. And, and maybe that's why the numbers, we can't get quite get the numbers um, correctly on, on Black people is because we, we find a way. Um, I found a way to play with the guys, um, and I didn't really know any different because I was doing what what I felt was in my heart playing. I played football. I played baseball. I played softball. I played track. We had we had someone in my neighborhood. His name was Skin Tight. Skin Tight put on like Olympic sports. He he. We painted a track in this big field that we grew up in. So we're really resourceful. I didn't have anybody. I didn't see anybody on television to look up to. I, there was the NBA. So my, my, my dreams were to play in the NBA. Um, so, um, but I don't feel like I was robbed of anything looking back on it. But now that I sit where I sit, you know, if girls had to go through what I had to go to, through, and maybe there are some in some pockets of the, of the country, that's why the numbers are down because we, we, we can't find all girls um, opportunities. So, I mean, I was one of the fortunate ones that I didn't let it limit the amount of time that I put into my sports. 
growing up. And Don, when you look to your left and right during the time when you were hanging out with Skin Tight and the crew, were there other girls with you in that football, in, in those spaces? I, I was the only one. And you know, when you're the only one, it comes with a lot of persevering. It comes with a lot of ridicule because, you know, you don't look like them and they don't want you there. My brothers didn't want me hanging out with them when they were playing sports because they just felt like it wasn't a place for girls. And, and luckily, just where I grew up, I grew thick skin. That didn't matter to me. What, what mattered to me was, you know, me being able to um, legally live out my, my competitiveness um, in a way that made me feel good and made my parents proud of me. Candace, we always hear those stories from women athletes. I, I played with the boys because there wasn't a girls team. What was that like for you versus what's now available for your daughter, Layla? Well, first and foremost, I grew up in a family that treated us as kids. My parents didn't have different curfews for me and my brothers. They didn't have different expectations for myself and my brothers. And so early on, I grew up going to the park with my brothers and my family. And I was exposed to so many different sports. Fortunately, I lived in an amazing, I lived in Naperville, Illinois. And at the time it was voted the second best place to raise kids. They had, you know, levels of sports, different sports, all that stuff. So I was exposed to soccer, volleyball, basketball. Um, But I will say in recreational sports, I started off playing as one of only probably one or two girls on an all boys team for YMCA when we'd go to the park of course I'd be picked last <laughs> um, the first time I would go and they wouldn't want you want me there and in eighth grade sixth grade seventh grade when we were playing basketball at our school I mean we got the boys uniforms that they used before and so I I do think once I kind of stepped out into the real world and saw outside of my house that like girls are treated differently than boys then it became something that I definitely noticed growing up um, just in terms of access. And then in terms of Layla being in California, it's all about exposure. There's a number of teams that you can play for at the AAU level or, or in, with basketball. But my main thing as a parent is I want to expose her, her and have a balance of yes, playing team sports, but also creativity. I mean, Dawn Staley, if you watch her play, she's creative because she played, she wasn't with a trainer all the time dictating moves at cones like she was creative because she played she freelanced she did things like that so for me personally I would like to see more young girls at open gyms and things like that like have an all-female run or something like that because I think that's just as important as having organized stuff as well yeah no doubt and and, then just listening to your story and Dawn's story just keeping in mind that you two are success stories in this you know if Dawn was the only one in that scenario imagine how many other little girls in her neighborhood did not come out and were at home Um, and for you if your parents which are a key component of this which we will talk about had not exposed you where would you guys be today Sarah what can parents do when they're told that there's not a team for the girls and in particular, obviously, low socioeconomic neighborhoods that run into this issue more frequently. Yeah, so, I mean, when we're looking at school sports, right, because that's where Title IX applies. Title IX applies to school sports, not necessarily to the community programs. And I think we'll touch on that a little bit later in terms of access at the community level. But 
let's say you're interested in a sport, your daughter is interested in a sport and the school doesn't offer that. The, the first step is to really assess what's going on at that school, understand what that landscape looks like. Is the school offering equitable opportunities for boys and girls at that school in the athletic program? Nina mentioned that the law center has a checklist, you know, the women's sports foundation has resources as well, but really it's about understanding what is available to the student athletes at that school. And then if you feel like it isn't equitable, right, if there are inequities at the school, then, then you want to try and advocate for change. And so what I would recommend is that, you know, reach out to the women's sports foundation. We are here. Our advocacy team is here to help parents guide them through the process, act as a sounding board, provide resources and make sure that folks understand the law, that you're educated on the law and you understand how to take action. And so it's everything from, you know, advocating on the ground within the school district, asking for opportunities, making sure that coaches and athletic directors are educated on the law because all too often we see that they aren't even educated. So they don't even fully understand what's required of them by law. Right. So there is that option to work internally within the school district. But then if that doesn't work, there are options like filing a complaint with the Office for Civil Rights, which Nina mentioned earlier, or a lawsuit, but that can be timely and expensive. And so really it's about advocating on the ground for gender equity and informing schools of what the rights are for the girls in that area. And to your point, which is a good one, we are talking about what the school makes available. And really quickly before we shift to another topic, Don, of those sports that you did play or had exposure to through non-traditional ways, how many did you actually play in school? Um, other than basketball, I played one other sport, which was softball. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't I wasn't really down with wearing the the, the volleyball outfit, so <laughs> um, those those were the only two: uh, softball and and basketball. We'll have a conversation about diversity of sports in a little bit. All right. So moving on to another concern, which is the lack of support at home for girls of color, who more often than white girls are coming from low socioeconomic neighborhoods where parents are carrying so much more of the burden. And here are the statistics. 24% of all white children below the age of 18 come from single parent families, where 65% of African-American children under the age of 18 are coming from single-parent homes. So obviously, those numbers are just, just pop out to me because Black children are more than t- almost twice as likely to come from single-parent homes or are more than twice likely. Um, I know that for me, if it wasn't for a man in my community named Michael J., um, who just kept coming back to my house, kept coming back to my house, asking my mom if I could play basketball, I, I wouldn't be here right now, right? So he was that guy who mentioned to my mom, listen, you know she could get a, a college scholarship, and that was the only thing she needed to hear. But she didn't know that until he kept coming and knocking on our door. Um, Candace and Dawn, this question is for both of you. And Candace, we can start with you. What kind of support system did you have? And I know you mentioned your parents at home, but also in the community as far as people and resources that not only got you into sport, but kept you into sport. Because um, one number that we see that is really low for girls of color is retention. It's the age at which they first get started or exposed, exposed to sport, but then it's also staying involved. And we know that sometimes that can take a community when you think about the time, the transportation, the money, all of those are the different things that go into it. 
I was extremely fortunate. Um, my parents were that. My parents were uh, the community that advocated for my teammates and myself to be able to go on trips and to be able to, you know, play sports. I played in, in the suburbs, but in the summer, our AAU team was a mixture of kids from the city, kids from the suburbs. Um, we even had some kids that were, you know, right across state lines. So fortunately, my parents were the ones that, you know, maybe if somebody couldn't afford it to, to play on a team, we, we raised money as a team to help them out. Um, there's a number of things like that that we did and tried to include a number of, of, of girls that maybe didn't have the same opportunities that we had in the suburbs. And so I think um, I'm so thankful for that and for that opportunity. And I think in a way, my brothers being older than me, they're 11 and eight years older than me. My dad coached them. He saw the difference between men's and women's basketball. He saw the difference between the process of what it was to have my brother be exposed and be able to play in front of college coaches and get a scholarship and his teammates. And he saw the differences between how it was and the experience for us. And so I'm very thankful that my parents really stepped in and tried to, to close that gap and tried to give opportunities to other people on my team. Don, how about for you in terms of the, what the support looked like when it came to keeping you involved in sport, money, time, resources, transportation, all of those factors? Um, well, advocates come in a lot of different shapes and sizes. Um, you know, two of my advocates, I, I can't remember, one of, one of the, their names is uh, Mr. J, um, who every single day he opened the gym up. Every single day he opened it up. Um, during the work hours, he opened it up during off hours um, because he wanted a safe place for us in the neighborhood to, to come to play basketball. Um, I was I was very fortunate in that I was I was a part of the AU program that we didn't we we actually ended up beating um, the the Philadelphia Bells one one game. Back then, AAU, it was a two-game elimination. So that meant that the, the big Philadelphia Bells um, um, brought in they, – they had enough money to bring in another player. Edna Campbell came in and played against us, and we actually ended up losing because he was able to bring in some other players. But at the end of the day, we combined our team. So Mike Flynn um, combined – our team and his team. So it was six and six to go to the nationals because if we had won, we wouldn't have been able to afford to go to the nationals, but because we combined it, Mike had the resources to take us to the nationals. And we ended up winning the very first um, AAU nationals. So, you know, I, I have to give Mike Flynn credit for, you know, being able to see the talent that was on our team as well as combining it with the talent on his team. And I, that's probably the very first time that I played with anyone other than uh, uh, black teammates. So it it was incredibly uh, um, encouraging because I, I learned about another culture. Uh, we had, you know, friend, a friendship um, was birthed out of that. I still know, know my friends from AAU. Um, they, I used to go to the suburbs and see them at their homes. They used to come to the projects. Obviously, they had to get out of there before nightfall. 
But they, we, I, I learned about cultures, and actually that was what I needed before heading off to a predominantly white university like, like Virginia. They helped me to a certain extent. So through basketball, I was able to grow. And, and, and now that I, I, I'm at the University of South Carolina, I find my experiences at Virginia are extremely helpful being in, in this environment. So, you know, because of basketball, you know, and the opportunity to play, I've, I've traveled and I've seen the world. I've made great friends uh, from all walks of life. And, you know, if more, more uh, girls in my neighborhood were, were, were able to pick that basketball up, we could have done it together. But instead, I'm here sharing my journey and hopefully my journey will allow another uh, little black girl who grew up like I grew up an opportunity to see the world, to, to, to participate in Olympic games, to coach an Olympic team, uh, to graduate from college. All of those things were, 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 were birthed because of my ability to play basketball and given the opportunity to play basketball. So if you were another young black girl from Philly, who maybe wasn't as good as Don Staley and maybe didn't get picked up by the Philly Bells, what would have been your interaction with white boys and girls or men and women had you never took those steps and eventually made it to, to Virginia? Zero, zero. I mean, my, my, my neighborhood was maybe we had, maybe we had one, one, one resident, a white family. And I, I, I guess actually remember we called him White Mike because he was, he, it was, it wasn't an offensive thing, but it was just, you know, we had Mike's in the neighborhood. So he ended up being White Mike, great family, enjoyed them. But, but, you know, Mike was like, his family were like us, poor, didn't have a whole lot of, you know, opportunity. We made opportunities. We made it. We, we, we cut out the bottom of milk crates. We got nails and we put it on a on a a made a wooden backboard. We we nailed it to the electrical pole where it was safe. And and as Candace was 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 just mentioning earlier, you know, I had a mean bank shot on a crate rim on a crate rim. So again, I just would encourage everyone if you. If, if there aren't any organizations, all girls, we're creative beings. Be creative. Don't let anyone dampen your dream or prevent you from playing a sport because there are so many life lessons in sports that if you rob yourself of that space, um, you're, you're shortchanging your life and, and what your life could be. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. And shout out to Candace as well, because I was one of those young girls that your parents would have been paying for on the team. Because <laughs> if it wasn't for the collection plate, my mom was like, this ain't you. Let, let me clarify. My parents weren't paying for them. We were helping to like raise money and oh, do I was a okay. child knocking on the door, trying to collect for a book that probably wasn't going to come out. Like that was us. Yeah, so okay. we let, me, let me clarify. I'm much, I'm much, I'm much older than you. So, you know, rules are different, but I, we were the collection play crew and I was getting a ride to every practice. So I, I definitely was that one that was just lagging on. Sarah, whose responsibility is it to recruit girls of color to play sport and to educate parents on the availability of programs for assistance if they need it? 
So I, I think the, the first thing to say here, right, this is on all of us. This is a systemic issue, and it truly is on all of us who are involved in the sports world, in girls' sports, to make sure that girls of color have opportunities. Um, but we really need to build the pipeline, right? We can talk about Title IX and, and how it's shortchanging girls of color, but if we don't build that pipeline at the community level, even if best case scenario, when black girls, girls of color get to high school and there are opportunities there, if they've never played the sport before, right? What are the chances that they're going to go out for that team? What are the chances that they'd make the team if they went out for it? So it's making sure that we build that pipeline. And part of building that pipeline is educating parents, making sure parents understand the importance of sports, right? The health, social, educational benefits that girls receive by being part of sports and, and once they understand that, hopefully that they're more willing to prioritize that sport experience for their daughters, because sometimes what we see is that parents will prioritize sports for their sons, but not necessarily for their daughters, right? So it's, it's understanding that full picture of what are the benefits your daughters are getting by participating in sports and making sure that they understand that and, and allow the girls to prioritize that and prioritize that for the girls, right? Yeah. But it's also about finding girls where they are. You know, whether it's, you know, opening up the gym in, in the community so girls can access it, if it's finding other things that girls are interested in and recruiting them from those activities and clubs that they're already involved in, um, and finding out what they're interested in, right? It doesn't matter if you're offering a sport if it's not what the girls in, the, in that particular community or that particular town are interested in. So it's reaching out to girls, finding them where, where they are you know, offering opportunities and making sure that the parents understand the importance of it. Um, one story comes to mind that Women's Sports Foundation has a Go Girl Go curriculum, which serves to get um, underserved girls active and introduce them to sports and physical activity. And I had a community um, program leader who was talking to me and telling me how he used it. He convinced parents to let the girls come to Go Girl Go because in Go Girl Go, it's a curriculum that has stories from high-profile female athletes, right? So it gives role models. He sold it as a reading program to the parents to, to try and sell it as education, right? They're coming to reading. We might do some sports also, but, like, we're reading. This is an educational experience. So find a way in and find a way that communicates the importance to the parents and allows those girls to, to come in and, and start participating, Um and for community programs that already exist or are thinking about adding sports, um, look to the Women's Sports Foundation. We have our Sports for Life initiative that we started in 2014 with ESPNW, and it uh, is established to either create or expand opportunities for girls of color, so Black girls, Hispanic girls, um, and so far has reached 162 community organizations across 32 states with nearly $2 million in funding and grants and more than 60,000 girls in 50 sports. So there are programs out there that are serving predominantly girls of color. And on top of that, there are opportunities for funding from places like the Women's Sports Foundation that would allow communities to start adding more opportunities for girls. So really adding opportunities, making sure that girls are aware of them and, and offering the opportunities that girls are interested in. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting to hear you say go where they are, because unfortunately, in a lot of these single parent homes, and I, as I was reading up on this and researching, 
the black girls or girls of color are the ones at home being the caretaker for their younger siblings. They have to get a second job to help with the family income. And so, you know, to have that freedom to be even found somewhere in the community is one that a lot of girls of color don't always have. Um, Nina, how do we widen sports opportunities for black girls when access increasingly hinges on the financial resources and a steep time commitment from parents? Um, or as we see in this data, single parents, which that's a lot of responsibility. Yeah, well, I mean, expanding school sports opportunities would really help with that because those opportunities are obviously not as expensive um, as private leagues and schools are paying for a lot of what varsity athletes are getting. Um, And if schools can provide those opportunities for boys, which they do, then they can and they must under the law do it for girls. So this is where we've seen Title IX and other civil rights laws be really helpful tools. Um, I've seen a lot of people, parents and community advocates and coaches, get schools to do what they're supposed to by using the law and the facts and pressing for change. Um, I've also seen some school districts partner with college or professional female athletes, for example, to help girls have more role models, take some of the pressure off parents, right, to do it all. Um, one example, I worked with a good Title IX coordinator years ago at D.C. public schools uh, who got a WNBA player from the Mystics to go talk to girls in the schools um, about the benefits of playing sports. They weren't having as many girls come out for teams as they wanted. And a lot of it, honestly, was that some of the girls didn't know about the opportunities that were available. Um, and having somebody like that go talk to them about, hey, this is what sports did for me. This is why it's so great. Um, and encouraging them made a big difference. Yeah, exposure, and we will get into that in a moment. All right, so moving along, the third area we want to discuss is another space that we see a major gap for Black girls, and that is in college athletics. And I want to read um, a quote to you guys from Benita Fitzgerald Mosley, who was an Olympic gold medalist in track and field. She said, there's a whole host of African-American women who have benefited greatly from Title IX. We've gotten college scholarships and college degrees. We've made Olympic teams. Track and field is an area where a large number of African-American women receive college scholarships. But in the grand scheme of things, Caucasian girls have benefited disproportionately more, especially suburban girls and wealthy Caucasian girls. These numbers right here that we'll take a look at right now speak to Benita's sentiment. And, And when I saw them, I was rather shocked 56% of all Division I women student athletes are white. 21% of all Division I student athletes are black. White high school girls are more than twice as likely to participate in sports at the Division I level than black girls. As we dig deep, we start to see a trend that is likely connected to some of the financial and exposure issues that we discussed earlier, especially from the community and grassroots level. So let's dig a little bit deeper and look at some numbers. Sports like lacrosse, black girls at the division one level, 2%. Swimming, 2%. Soccer, 5%. Softball, 8%. Volleyball, 12%. So this is the participation. You take away basketball, which I believe their number was a little over 50%, at the college level for black girls and track and field, I believe was right around 30% participation for black girls, which I thought would be a higher number. 
But this was really jaw-dropping when, when I saw this. So when you break it down by sport, you realize that the number, one, the number of Division I female athletes that are white have a larger pool of options for college participation than female athletes of color. Don, how many, and you, I know you spoke a little bit to this in your case as a young girl, but how many of the young girls of color that you have coached have played other sports, and why do you think that has or has not happened? Um, very few of them. If it if it was in the sports uh, that that you didn't mention, um, none of them played the sports that you just you know showed the the low um, numbers of uh, African American um, or, or or people of color. And I and I'm looking at those sports and it's access. I mean, in the places that I've grown up in, we didn't have access to lacrosse, soccer. We didn't have um, volleyball. We we didn't have access. What we had access to were were things that you didn't really need a whole lot of. You, a basketball, you can go anywhere. You know, have a basketball and play. Um, softball, you didn't really, or, or baseball, you didn't need gloves. You know, you you utilized what you have, and it's expensive. All those other sports are much more expensive than than AAU basketball, much more. So when you don't have access. You, you don't even think about it. I, I'm sitting here looking at the screen. And I'm like, could I have been a, a, a good lacrosse player? I, that crossed my mind. Like, could I have been a good lacrosse player? I'm thinking probably because it's very similar to, you know, what we do in basketball. You're shooting it in a, in a net. Um, but I had seen none of that growing up. I probably didn't even know what lacrosse was growing up in the Raymond Rosen Projects. Um, but I, I do think if given the opportunity, if given the opportunity, um, girls of color would excel. They they would. I think given anybody opportunity, you're going to be able to excel. But what comes with um, girls of color playing in those sports, you're, you're the severe minority. Mm-hmm. So not only are you breaking glass ceilings and playing, but you're going to have to deal with some other stuff that comes with it, mm-hmm. which is, you know, if you're coming from my neighborhood, you're not going to talk like them. That's a barrier. You're going to get ridiculed because you don't, you don't, when I, when I mentioned the, the white girls that I hung out with on my AAU team, I talked differently than them. They used to laugh at how I said things. Um, I didn't care. But some some people may care. So that will force them out of a sport that they probably love and enjoy playing because they don't quite fit in. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, and, and with that, I, I don't know. Do, do we tell them to keep pushing through? I would say yes, because there is a life lesson for you and for the people that you're playing with. Mm-hmm. And if, if we break into that, if we break into those 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 racial barriers, I think our world will be in a better place because people just don't know. If I'm, if that makes me uncomfortable and I don't do it, it's because I don't know. But anything that is successful, you've, you've dealt with being uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. So this sport should be no different. Yeah. 
Candace, I know you played soccer, um, part of a very small population of black girls that play the sport. How did that become a reality for you? I know you touched upon that earlier, but how do you also go about ensuring that Layla has diverse options in sports? I think the biggest thing now, and this isn't just a problem for women, but it's a problem for all athletes. I think parents, society are forcing kids to choose early on. And these kids are making this decision to go forward with one sport at 10 or 11 years old. My family was huge advocates for try, try things. So I did volleyball, I did basketball, and I did soccer. Soccer was my number one sport for an extremely long time. I didn't start playing real serious AAU basketball until I was like 12 or 13. Soccer was my sport. And, um, and then volleyball came along. Actually, the first recruiting letter I got from the University of Tennessee was for volleyball. It wasn't even for basketball. So having that exposure, like Don said, it breaks down barriers. You're able to meet people that you wouldn't have met. You learn things about people you wouldn't have ordinarily known. And just from a basketball standpoint, like how much soccer has helped my game individually, Mm -hmm. uh, just in terms of versatility, foot quickness, being able to have the agility to handle the ball and things like that. So I think playing a variety of sports also helps your main sport that you want to participate in. And then the same thing, like I'm a professional athlete and I would be lying to you if I didn't tell you I wanted my child to want to play basketball or want to play a sport. But at the end of the day, I wanted to play a sport because there's so many lessons that can be learned from playing a sport. There's so many things that you gain. And I sit over like a proud parent at an AAU event and just watch her communicate with her teammates watch her go help somebody up, watch her encourage, watch her give high fives. So I want to expose her to a variety of sports because like Don said, it exposes her to a variety of different people. And if you think, I mean, I've played basketball in Russia, Turkey, played in China, like this round ball has taken me all around the world to play basketball and meet different people and be exposed to different cultures. And I think that because basketball has allowed me to do that with different countries and cultures, so do different sports. And so I don't think that we should generalize. I mean, we're seeing things that are going on in the world, even with NASCAR, with it being an all uh, white sport. Um, We're seeing different things that going on and how those barriers have to be broken for those things to be broken within society. So I think sport is kind of the first step. Yeah. I mean, just hearing you talk and hearing Dawn speak, I'm thinking when you look at these teams, lacrosse, golf, you know, all the numbers we looked at where there's 2% black girls participating what if those teams had more black girls how may those white girls see black people differently if their teammate is black if they've had a chance to spend time with a Candace Parker or a Dawn Staley and be exposed to that like how many issues in our world of racism um you know would I mean I think no doubt it would help in our understanding but it comes from wanting to be uncomfortable but also giving black girls the opportunity to be integrated into those spaces where people can say, wow, Candace is amazing. Wow. Dawn is outstanding. When I get a job, you know, I know this black woman is capable. My teammate was black. Okay. (laughs) You know, like I've I've had this experience where as we saw earlier, there are a lot of schools that are 90% white or 90% black. How much are our children really learning about diversity. Um, We're going to close this one up so we can move to the next topic, but we just want to say when we know equipment for a sport like golf is very expensive, Don mentioned equipment, then there's a lot of questions like, do you have a swimming pool in your community? Is there even space for a soccer field? Access to coaches, 
of those sports. So those are all questions that we have to continue to ask about girls that live in low socioeconomic uh, communities and whether or not they can actually change the percentages of this number of these numbers based on what they have available. I'm going to skip to the final area that may impact the participation numbers for girls of color in sport, and that's the lack of visibility of women of color in coaching and um, to watch them participating in professional sports. Black women are 2%, 2% of head coaches and 2% of athletic directors across all three divisions. So division one, two, and three, only 2% of head coaches and athletic directors are black women, 2%. On the media side, as far as visibility of professional athletes of color, women's sports are only getting 4% of media coverage. And that includes the WNBA, which is 80% black, which is a great chance for young girls to see women of color playing at the next level. So the chances of these young girls seeing role models like Candace Parker or like Adon Staley are slim when you look at 2% and 4%. Um, if these numbers were different, it could definitely help with introduction and the retention in sport for girls of color once they get involved because they will then know what is possible and what's available and they can have a goal to strive towards and possibly uh, turn their sport into a career. Don, do you remember the first time you saw a black female head coach and how did that visual impact your commitment to the sport of basketball? I honestly, I don't think I've ever seen a, a, a black head coach when I was growing up. I mean, I, cause I didn't, I didn't see women play in college. The only, the only times that I've seen women play were two, you know, two events. One was national championship and two was uh, the Olympic Games. And there were no women, black women head coaches in, in during that time that I was growing up. Um, uh, Vivian Stringer was a, a, a black head coach that recruited me. I don't even think I knew what she looked like uh, because it wasn't prevalent. I, I knew what she sounded like. I knew when she came into my home, um, what she looked like then, um, she did tell me she was black and she did, you know, want me to come play for a black coach. Um, and did I feel pressure? No, I didn't feel pressure to, to, to go play for, for coach Stringer at that time. Um, because the other schools and head coaches had put in a lot of time and, you know, for me, I was, you know, very loyal to the people who were there with me from the very beginning to the end. Um, but now that I'm on the other side of it, I'm like, you know, I, I do reflect and think back on why. Um, and that's why I tried to get, get in very early on um, recruits because I don't want them to, I don't want them to, I don't want to lose out an opportunity to recruit, recruit, recruit and the coach some very talented um, young ladies growing up in, you know, growing up in our game. Um, so it's weird. I mean, they're, you know, those numbers are, are 2% right now. It, it feels a little bit different, you know, from the numbers. But when you put the numbers in front of somebody, you realize that we've fallen short. We've fallen short. 
especially basketball. Let me just say basketball because that is my that's my area. We fall in short if fifty percent of of the makeup of women's basketball players um, mm-hmm. is black females. They should be coached by by black females because you know we can help them navigate through life in a certain way. It's not to say that I don't think that. That, that white coaches are are capable, you know, but it, it hasn't been a popular thing to, to go play for a black coach. It hasn't, it's been very unpopular. So I, I think for me, I, I have to continue the success path that we've had uh, throughout my career. So we give other young black coaches an opportunity and give these ADs and the decision makers who, who hire um, a, a a different outlook on what you can expect from a black head coach. So you know, do I feel the pressure of of succeeding? Yes, is and being successful, absolutely. Because there are more of us out there that can do the things that I've been able to do here at South Carolina because of because of one, I'm I'm in. I I, I give people access to it, but also I think I. Uh, not just in the the wins and losses, I think I have a connection with the community. You know, we like connection. We like we like relationships. And when you, you know, when you, and, and, and somebody told me this, one of our fans told me this, when you treat people good, they treat you better. So I try to treat people really good so in turn they can give our players a, a, an experience that they would not have gotten at any other university with me being a, a, a black coach. Yeah, and we could go into a lot of that if we had the time because why have student-athletes been hesitant to go play with black coaches is a whole other question about opportunity, visibility, and so on. But thank you for making that point. I know we're running uh, short on time, so, but Candace, I want to ask you, the WNBA is 80% blacks. So when we talk about exposure for young girls to what opportunities are out there, um, and media is only covering 4% of women's sports, what kind of impact do you believe the WNBA has had and will continue to have on those young girls as the visibility visibility of the league continues to grow? Well, before I answer your question, LaChana, I want to piggyback on kind of what, what Don was saying yeah. in the sense of, you know, there's four women coaches out of 12 in the WNBA. And as of today, from last year, there's zero women of color. So we have a league that has represented 80% are women of color. And I say it, and I'll say it until I'm blue in the face. We represent a league that is a majority of the minority. And I say that in the sense of race. I say that in a sense of gender. I say that in a sense of social economic background. I say that in a sense of sexual orientation, all of the above. And we don't reflect that in our leadership positions within the WNBA. So how can we then go out and ask other leagues and other places and other organizations to do these things and hire these people when we don't do it? Yeah. So that's the, that's, that's a major thing, but uh, getting back to what you're saying, I, the WNBA started when I was 11 years old. Mm -hmm. So I grew up playing basketball, watching other female athletes play. And it was so important and I know Don played for the Charlotte Sting, and I'm sorry, but I was a I was a Houston Comets fan, and I was raising the roof, 
with Tina Thompson and raising the roof with Coop. I mean, when I met them, when I met the team and I saw them play in 96 at the Olympics, that inspired me to want to play basketball. Like that was kind of the building block of wanting to play. And um, I will say how important it is for not just young girls. It's so important for young boys to see female athletes as role models, because what comes along is sport is so connected to the boardroom and that's where you get your credibility. That's where all of that, you learn your life skills from sport. So it's so important for people to be exposed to women playing sports and be okay with it. And it's just as important for the the boys to see the young girls in that role as it is for the girls. And so I'm, I'm huge advocate for exposure, obviously women's sports exposure at the professional level, but I do think it, it, it goes to, to, to college. It goes on down to, to, to high school exposure, things like that. Um, and I was very fortunate to play for coach Pat summit who fought for that, mm-hmm. um, who fought for, for women equality and, and far before it was popular in the same way uh, that, that Billy does. And so I, I feel like at this point in time, we have to step with, uh, we have to take a step forward and you're right. It's with the decision makers because the decision makers are choosing what's on television. The decision makers are choosing what's printed in the newspaper. And there has to be a conscious effort to put more women at the forefront because that's the only thing that's going to change things. And that in itself, Candace, goes back to sport participation, right? I remember there was a statistic once about the women who were in Fortune 500 companies in leadership positions and how so many of them could track their success back to a sports background. So we want more diversity both in, in, in race and in gender in those positions of leadership this is a great place to start. And, and thank you for your comments on the WNBA because you are, are right on in terms of um, some of what we need to see in, in the leadership, especially whew, zero black women head coaches, 80% black league. That is, um, that is very stark. So um, I want to finish up here with a couple of, of just quick topics. And I'll, and I'll start with you, Sarah. We've talked so much about the need to increase the opportunity for sports for black girls. Um, and we, we've mentioned education at access, but what are some of the other benefits that black girls are missing out on by not being counted in, in sport as white girls are? Yeah. And, and so there's so many benefits that all girls receive from sports across education, social and health benefits. And this really gets to the why, right? Like why does it matter that black girls don't have access to sports And why does it matter that girls don't have equity compared to boys? And it matters because they're missing out on all of those benefits. So it's the things like access in the boardroom, like the leadership skills you gain through playing sports, um, reduced risk of health, um, poor health outcomes, like risk of breast cancer and osteoporosis that can be linked. Lower breast cancer rates can be linked to playing sports in your adolescence. So there are so many health outcomes that come from playing sports. And for, for Black girls specifically, Black women are among the highest prevalence for health risks like cardiovascular disease, obesity, and diabetes. And so if we can get Black girls playing sports, that sports and physical activity helps to mitigate those risks, right? And so that really helps to change the statistics on that matter. So it's the health risks, it's education, it's better, you know, academic outcomes, more leadership and, you know, uh, 
C-suite positions, like you said, with the Ernst and Young study. So certainly there's a wide range of opportunities. And Nina, we've talked a lot about sports today, but I know that Title IX covers so much more than that. Can you touch on the NWLC's recent work and how the new Title IX rules on sexual harassment impact girls and women, um, but particularly girls of color? Yeah, I'll just uh, quickly mention a couple things. Title IX covers any form of sex discrimination, including sexual harassment and assault, which um, unfortunately affects kids at all levels of education and students um, from K-12 through graduate school. And just last month, Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos issued new Title IX rules that weaken protections for students against sexual harassment in schools. Uh, it's, there are over 2,000 pages that they issued and they want, uh, schools to implement them by mid-August in the middle of a pandemic. Um, so if anybody's interested, we have a fact sheet on our website. I won't get into the details, but I do want to say what's worse is that we know that black and brown women and girls suffer higher rates of sexual harassment and violence. And when they do have the courage to come forward, they are often blamed and shamed and punished based on harmful race and sex stereotypes that label girls and women of color, for instance, as promiscuous. Um, And I have represented in my career, black and Hispanic girls who have reported sexual harassment to their schools only to be blamed for what happened to them and suspended for violating school rules uh, based on those very stereotypes. So that's why we've actually sued the department of education to stop those rules from going into effect. Um, But anyway, that's, a real problem and it's going to weaken the law. And and I think it's going to prevent students from coming forward, which is really the opposite of what you want. Yeah. Thank you for that work. I mean, just hearing yet another issue that's disproportionately impacting girls and women of color that we need to be aware of. Um, Once again, for the audience, as we wrap up here, just want to say thank everyone for joining us. Please make sure you use the hashtag the Equity Project. I think I might have said hashtag Equity Project earlier, but it's, I guess it's The Equity Project. Um, and just really quickly, if we could go around. I mean, none of this is, is new, um, but recent events are, are bringing racial equity to the forefront of our conversations. Um, I would ask all of you guys, what's next? What systemic changes do we need? Uh, let's start with you really quickly, Candace. I think with everything that's going on, in our world today. Um, I think the biggest thing for me action wise is just as we've dealt with racial issues for a long period of time and now it's come to a head and everybody is challenging people to that basically silences racism in a sense. And just as we've encouraged our white friends and our white families to come forward and speak because it is not the job of the person that is being oppressed to speak. I challenge men. That's what I challenge. I challenge men to come forward and be that voice and be that advocate. And, you know, we lost Kobe Bryant this past year. That was a huge advocate for women. And with that being said, we need so many people to follow in the footsteps of what he was doing and what he was encouraging others to be a part of doing. And so I think just as we're sitting here challenging white people to step forward and fight and speak on behalf of black individuals, I think it's the same. We need men to come forward. We need men to hire. We need men to, to make room, move over. We don't want you to back up from the table, just move over. And so I think it's huge for us right now, 
with this all equality being, you know, thrown around that it's not your equality, my equality, it's our equality. And until that is reached from all points of view, it's not equality. Thank you for that, Candace. Coach Staley. Um, I mean, this is a, it's a, it's a, that's a tw- tough question because, um, yeah, I think black people are tired, really tired, tired of, um, taking it because that's what we had. I mean, you're, you're forced to take it and now we're forced to, to figure out how we, how we get ourselves out of it. But you can't tire. You you got to have the stamina. What I'm going to do personally is continue to educate our players. Um, I am I am currently like putting together an action plan for for my university, for the state of South Carolina, and for its community, and and with deadlines because we 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 have numbers. We need those numbers to change and trend upwards uh, to give black people an opportunity uh, to grow and to be successful um, in this sports setting because that's what I can control. I can't control outside of where I live. I can't control where I live, where I work, um, and the community that I live in. So I'm going to concentrate there. I'm almost finished with my action plan, and I hope I hope it's a model for for every other college or, or university or or corporate America, mm-hmm. I, I I hope it's you can. I, I'm not going to charge anybody for it. Take it, but if you take it, utilize it and implement so you can give Black people an opportunity, the same opportunities that others have um, here at the University of South Carolina. Thank you, Don. Um, and I will say that even just from afar, it's clear how you have changed um, some of the culture in South Carolina um, in terms of just the, the racial divide in some places and how um, the sport of basketball in particular, your program ha- has brought people from all over together as one. So we appreciate the work you're doing. Sarah. Well, I, you know, I think Candace really just hit the nail on the head with what is needed, but we need to make sure that this isn't the end of the conversation, right? There's been so much focus on racial equity in our current state, but we need to make sure that whatever is next, whatever the next big story is, doesn't detract from that. And that we really stay the course on this because, you know, as we've said on this panel, the conversations that have been happening, you know, around the country, this isn't a new problem, right? It's just finally getting noticed in a much bigger way. And maybe white people are finally starting to pay attention in a way that we haven't before, And so making sure that we stay the course, making sure that um, we keep racial equity at the forefront of all of our conversations and that we don't focus just on one particular group or another, right? It's if we're talking about equity for girls, it's all girls. And that includes girls of color and black girls um, and making sure that we, that we don't lose focus on this and that we really stay the course and work hard to correct some of the injustices that have occurred. Thank you, Sarah. And Nina. Oh, I mean, I obviously second everything that my colleagues here have said. I mean, I'll just add that I think we need to elect leaders at every level, right, who care about these issues, who enforce our civil rights laws. Um, And we all need to demand that they do that and to hold them accountable. 
um, in the ways that we have. Um, and I also think, you know, as Candace said, it's, it's about boys as well as girls. It's about all of us. And so um, for the next generation, you know, exposing them to all of the things that we've been talking about that are so important and teaching them and talking to them about racial issues and uh, diversity and all the things that we need to, I think is just critical. Well, I would like to thank our esteemed panel for all of your wonderful expertise, experiences, input. This has been a fantastic conversation to start more conversations, hopefully, to come from this because um, our girls of color do need us. Uh, and one thing I will say is, um, first of all, on that front, you know, again, I, I grew up in a single parent home and am one of 15 children that had the opportunity to go to college and basketball had a profound impact on my life. I would not be here without it. I would not even know where Wake Forest is without, was, or, you know, is when I was a kid without basketball. And so continue when you look around and you don't see girls of color, ask why. When you don't see women of color, ask why. Whether that's in your community, on your sports team, at your job, in your meetings every day, um, in your church environment, who are you surrounding yourself with? Who are you having conversations with? Are those diverse groups of people? Um, are your children getting to know people of all genders and, and colors and races and ethnicities? Um, just look around your life, no matter where that is in sport and business and continue to make a change. And I'm not sure if Billy is still on with us and wanted to have any parting words. Of course, she's the boss, so we have to defer to Billy if she if she has something for us. We'll wait a second. There she is. You're still with us, Billy. Okay. Now can you hear me? Yeah, we got you. I, I got the the National Women's Law Center here. Who All right. It says um, National Women's Law Center's up here. Respect students. Respect Title Nine. Anyway, I just want to thank everyone, but uh, we do work a lot with the National Women's Law Center, so I really wanted to. Nina, thank you, um, because we've worked with you, I don't know how many years, forever. A long time. Thanks to Deborah Larkin and all that. And uh, just that all of you, uh, the future is bright, uh, listening to each and every one of you with your journeys and also your hopes and dreams. And uh, we just got to keep moving it forward every single day. We cannot let up for one moment ever again. This is our opportunity. I have, I'm really old, so I do have perspective. And this is the first time, I must say, I think I'm kind of just holding my breath at the same time that this can, be, this will be a systemic change. This is the moment because it was different in the sixties. This is different. And this is an opportunity that everyone can get behind it. And we have to have this change for uh, people of color and black lives do matter. We have to do this. Uh, we cannot let up. So everyone's got to get behind it because everyone's going to win. Everyone's going to win. Every time we lift another person up or they lift themselves up or we create opportunities for people, they'll win. And so we have to, we have to do this, but all of you are so wonderful. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you, Sarah, for, you know, and the Women's Sports Foundation for setting it up and just um, let's keep going for it. And uh, I look forward to speaking to every one of you to thank you personally and also to get your wisdom, some more wisdom. So uh, this is left with, me with a lot of thoughts and I've made a lot of notes to see how we can make a difference in the future. So anyway, you guys are the best, you're leaders and uh, let's keep going for it. Thank you so much. 
Thank, thank you, you Billie Jean. And thank you for this platform. I mean, this is what it takes. And someone stepping up and saying, hey, let's have this conversation. This is important. This is the right time. So uh, thank you for opening your doors to so many okay. of us and giving us this space. Thank you. All right. Well, with that, thank you so much for joining us. And please be safe and be well, everyone. Thank you for listening to Around the Rim. Check out more podcasts from ESPN on the ESPN app.